to say. I'm out here doing everything you suck as cake. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our podcast, Break Some Dishes. Uh, this is a podcast where we search for those rare individuals who are forcing us to reevaluate the way we do things. In the name of our planet, they're questioning the status quo and challenging establishment, challenging laziness and apathy, and showing us that there are better ways of doing things so that this planet of ours can start to put itself back together. Because we'd like to know that our grandchildren and their children will get to grow up in a world that has not been destroyed and polluted, and they won't have to put a hazmat suit on just to go to the park or visit a museum to see animals that used to roam the earth. So I'm John Strasner, and my friend here, Verda Alexander, are finding these unique voices and bringing them to the design industry for inspiration, because we think everyone impacts design, and design impacts everyone. So I'm going to turn things over to Verda so she can introduce you to today's guest. Verda, go, girl. Thank you, John. All right. Our guest today is Eric Copeland, and I'm excited to talk with Eric today because I finally get to talk to someone in the art world. Yay. Yay. We love our artists. <laughs> why? Because they ask questions. Exactly. Having an arts background myself, I've always held the outsider perspective at my firm. It's something that's made our practice unique, looking at things from the outside in and asking questions. I think that's what art does. Air also is some is in some ways looking at the art world from the outside in, but also from the inside, from a place of wellness, grounding, and empathy. We will talk with Air about his unique perspective on the world. He actually didn't start out in the art world, at least not visual arts. Arian Copeland, a.k.a. Air, is an award-winning indie writer, producer, and director. He is heavily influenced by La Nouvelle Vogue filmmaking, Andy Warhol, and minimalism. He has also worked at several NGOs, including most recently Five Gyres, that focuses on reducing plastic pollution. He is now at a community art center in Long Beach, California. We will talk about the power of art to create change. It's what drew me to the art to art in the first place, not just to make beautiful things, but to impact the way we see the world. Art challenges the status quo and poses the tough and introspective questions that we need to be asking right now as we face great challenges to the wellness of our planet and people. All right. Speaking of tough questions, Air, are you ready? I am ready. Thank you for the kind intro. Well, yeah. thank you for joining us today, Air. It's it's really cool to be able to spend some time with you. I know we we've tried with with COVID. We're all traveling so much, and we're so hard to reach. And I know I'm never home. So <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Not. So Air, I have the honor of sort of getting things started today, and I'm very fascinated by you as a um, as a character in this novella that. Verda and I are putting together together via a series of podcasts. Verda, I didn't tell you that, but we're going to be writing a novella oh uh, when we're done with these podcasts. You know, <laughs> <laughs> because the podcast is is not difficult enough. We we need some additional challenges. But but Air, you've done so much. Is there a a favorite memory of? Of, I mean, I'm thinking about you as a filmmaker. I'm thinking about you, at, you know, as an executive director at Five Guyers, and you've done a lot. But I, I don't even know how a guy like you, how you're wired. You have no fear, obviously. You don't, you don't fear failure. 
Uh, I'm rambling right now, but so, so what's the question, John? Come on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I wanted to know. I wanted to know why you have no fear of failure. <laughs> well, that's a great, great question, and I would say my my ultimate like mantra. It's very simple to every human being is to be courageous. Um, if you look at the um, entirety of, of my background in art and wellness and, and community and environmentalism, all of those things in film, all of those things took a tremendous amount of courage. And I think that is nestled in, in more or less my my spiritual practices and working within humanism and my human potential and learning that you know the, the you know the real journey is is inside yourself and and having to explore that and learn your possibilities I think is what it's all about. It's the second time in two days that I've wor- heard the word humanism. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> all well, right, so- I love humanism. I, I you know I my undergraduate degree is in transpersonal psychology, which is more or less kind of an exploration of consciousness and Jungian psychology and and that kind of thing. But a big underpinning of that is humanism. And I was fascinated by Maslow's hierarchy of needs and and how, you know, the basic needs were the foundation and you grow into self-actualization. And so humanism is such a a big part of of my career. And I'm also a, a, a Nichiren Buddhist. And so Humanism is the foundation of chanting, which is a real big part of my my uh, my practice. So, is humanism being centered, sort of a self awareness? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, it's a combination, I think, of self awareness, understanding your inner being, and learning how to trust a lot of your processes within, and deepening the potentiality of of who you are. So, you know, you. Know you have a, a mind, you know that's constantly filled with all kinds of stuff, stuff, thoughts, and emotions, and you have your physical body as well that you know you can touch and feel, and you know the sensory systems. But it's the experience of going through those things that you need to tap into, in my opinion, that opens up the potential. What's really beautiful about it is is that it's already there. It's like the acorn and the oak tree, and it's already built within. It's just you, the conditions have to be right. So you need to water it. You need to give it sunlight and you need to condition yourself. And that positive energy of being in your in the right garden and rooted in yourself, I think, is what makes the world go round. I think that's what makes humanity humanity. So. Yeah, I, th- I think I keep confusing like human centered design or humanist with being self centered or putting humans at the center, which I think is part of the part of why we ha- are having all these problems. Yeah. But but I, as I'm learning through this podcast and just everything that I've been reading lately, I think I'm being to understand that it's more about humanism is more about finding your place in the world within nature. Yes, I would agree with that because one of the the discoveries, at least for my journey, has been once I got in touch with who I am and started to trust my being, what I learned is, is that there's no separation between myself and other human beings and animals and nature and ultimately the universe. And so the spirituality 
that has opened up from my experience is that you are the universe and you are nature and you are other people. And then once you realize that, what's interesting, even though it's a self-oriented journey, you start to have more empathy and compassion and mindfulness for all those other things because you see yourself in all those other things. It's a reflection. And not only that, you can help to change the world for the better by altering your own individual experience, which is pretty remarkable. You can do that with drugs too, but I, I don't I take that route. That's expensive. <laughs> and it costs, costs a lot more money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I think if we look at all the, th- so wait, before we get into to too much more, Verda, I really want Air to tell us the story of how you actually got into making this movie about black surfers called Whitewashing. Oh yeah, whitewash. Okay, I love this. Whitewash. Sorry, whitewash. I love this story, and I've, I've told it a million times. But uh, so I was working for a fitness uh, center in in Southern California. Um, I just started surfing at this time. Just you know, I was inspired really to kind of impress the girl I was with at, at the time. And I was going out to surf one day on my lunch break, and while I was literally walking out with my board there was um, a trainer at the fitness center that stopped me in my tracks and he said, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm going out to surf. And he's like, wait, 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 come on now. Black people don't surf. Right. And uh, so, and I didn't really take it to heart. I just was like kind of smirked. But what happened was is that led to a very organic, deep conversation between the both of us, uh, which I think lasted about three or four hours. I didn't even surf that day. And uh, we started to explore everything from Black people surfing and social justice and environmentalism and all of these incredible topics. Um, At the end of that conversation, he said, you know what, we have to make a movie about this. And he was an aspiring documentarian. He had his, uh, I think, um, undergraduate degree in peace and justice studies. So he was really motivated to, like, shape this. And he's like, I'll only do it, though, if you are my producer. And I'm like, uh, I don't know what the fuck a producer does. <laughs> I went home. Time to Google. Time to Google yeah. like a man. No, literally, I went home and I Googled what does a producer do? <laughs> I don't even know what came up. I, I'm still trying to figure out what a producer does, I think. But, but it, I just trusted him. And we were on to this incredible journey. What was fascinating is we had no film experience. We had no idea even how to craft a narrative, but we started to, to contact people that we heard about through other surfers and things. And, and we found that there's a Black Surfers Association. There was a Black Surfers Association at the time, found the president, and they connected us with all these people. We just started interviewing all of them. And it was just compelling to hear all of these stories and their life of why they got into surfing and the challenges of race in the water. And... We had a baseline story, and then my wife, current my current wife, she uh, her her aunt was the I think executive manager of North America's you know surf league, you know professional surf league. It was called ASP at the time. It's World Surf League now, and she hooked us up with all these connections to professional surfers like Kelly Slater and Rob Machado and those guys. And it was incredible. They were like instantly interested. We interviewed them, and then we just put this whole film together. We got Ben Harper to narrate the film, 
and the roots to do the original score. And this was an unfolding on its own organic course. And next minute, you know, we had a movie and that's, that was how it all came together. It was one of the most fascinating pieces of my career. Yeah. Yeah. And to be able to say that you made a movie is a, that's a pretty nice feather to put in your cap. Oh yeah. To say the least. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. I want to get back to art. I want to, I'm really excited. Now you just started a a new position. Mm -hmm. Did you just start it and then the pandemic happened? Was that kind of it? (laughs) Yeah. The pandemic was already in full swing. Uh, Yeah. I've been on board since I think July. Yeah, I, I'm the executive director of, of Compound, and Compound is a creative complex and a cultural sanctuary in which uh, we foster the intersection, the, 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 in, the merging of contemporary art, high-quality contemporary art, uh, wellness, all of its splendor, and community, community impact. And uh, we have a lot of different points of entry to engage with all of those different areas, and we're nestled in Long Beach in a little district called uh, Zafaria, which is a, a beautiful neighborhood and very culturally rich. And we are navigating COVID to try to get this thing open and off the ground. But it's a powerful space because underneath the entire platform of contemporary art, wellness and community is equity and belonging. It's a space for everyone and purposely so, you know? So we really try to open up ideas and concepts to make sure that that people feel nurtured and welcome to experience the best of contemporary art and wellness. That sounds perfect for you. (laughs) It's merging wellness and all of that. Yep. With art, I have this, I was reading this over the weekend trying to get ready for our talk. What about activism? And and I'm, I'm assuming that your space is going to, is going to try to activate in all kinds of ways, the community. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really interesting right now, actually, I was just at the MoMA, SF MoMA, <laughs> yesterday. It was so amazing to be, to see art. I hadn't seen art in six months at, or eight months been crazy and it was just so nice to be out and see art it just reminded me that our institutions are everything's changing nothing's going we're never going back to normal and our institutions especially especially our cultural institutions are being redefined yes right now like right this minute see and how it merges with kind of this dialogue around our podcast and the our future and all, all of these other things that are swirling right now. Um, the, the back of this book asks an amazing question. I'll just pilfer this question for our podcast. Yeah. With the global rise of a, of a politics of shock driven by authoritarian regimes that subvert the rule of law and civil liberties, what paths to resistance, sanctuary, and change can cu- cultural institutions offer? What about activism and curatorial practice? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. So there's a lot of things that I think can be unpacked here. Um, and it's rooted in a lot of deep-seated issues, in particular within America, which I think the root of it is in white supremacy, because it has, in many respects, caused you know so much harm for the IPOC communities for a long period of time. And that root has spread and grown in everything that we've seen 
uh, happen in, in the corporate and consumeristic world. Um, we see it in commercials. We see it in films. We see it on TV. We see it on social media. So the the challenge is, is many people of color have constantly been, been on this this track of trying to adapt just for survival needs to the white supremacist culture. We've been trying or you're resisting or you're doing whatever, but to survive, it was so powerful. And we've seen it heightened in the last four years in ways that we haven't seen it before. Thank goodness that is hopefully coming to an end from at least that that um, perspective. But what happened is even in museum cultures and or museums and, and institutions, art institutions, that exclusivity with white supremacy was still there. And, you know, I always tell the story when I was a kid, my dad was a, was a physician and an artist and, and my mom was a, a school teacher and social worker. And I was, I always had the opportunity to go to various different art, art and museums all the time. And I was exposed but I always wondered why I didn't see more people of color in these museums or more of myself in these museums, even though it was inspiring and it really helped to shape and shift my own consciousness of what I can become. I didn't know why there wasn't more people of color represented in the space. Until I got older, I realized that a lot of these institutions just weren't in the communities that were primarily of people of color because um, they just didn't feel like they could connect. It was, again, part of the root of white supremacy or white privilege that kind of showed up. So one of the strategies and the value propositions that I think is very unique with Compound is, again, equity and belonging and having that accessibility right in the community that should be served because that's what it that you know we're it's all about giving those folks who have been disenfranchised and disempowered the opportunity to see what you can become it's mm-hmm. back to humanism it's going back mm-hmm. to discovering your human potential and in my opinion art is one of the most beautiful ways that we can do that but you have to have access and you have to be able to see yourself. I think it's really interesting because of the the rise in social justice from the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Richard Brooks and all of the other black bodies that were, were killed this year. I think there has been this big kind of push and movement for social justice to be part of your company or narrative. It's almost a requirement now. And there's always that crossroads of like, okay, that's great that you're saying that, but what are you really going to do? Right. It could be a marketing piece or cause it's like, you have to do this now. You see it all over. It's gotta be authentic. It's gotta be legitimate. Right. Exactly. Because it's very easy to say, Oh, we just need to put more people of color on our board, or we just need to have more people of color as part of our staff. That is very cosmetic. The question is, why weren't they on your staff already? Mm-hmm. That is the examination of your own culture, of your own framework of thinking for all of this time. What happened? So unless mm-hmm. that starts to, unless, unless you investigate that, more of the same is going to happen, in my opinion. 
Yeah, and you're talking about role models. It's, you know, if you're um, a young, you don't hear about Black artists, you don't see their work, it never occurs to you that that's a pathway that you could pursue. That's correct. For, For the most part, it depends on the conditions. Again, going back to the garden that you grow up in. For impoverished or underserved communities, for the the general population of those communities, you are just trying to survive day in and day out. Okay, so you don't you're not thinking about all these factors of possibilities of art. You know, yeah. The only yeah. the only paths that are shoved in our face is hip hop and you know sports culture. It's professional. You can you can make your way out of the hood. If you take one of those two tracks, you know, beautiful and that's great. But what happens is, is that it excludes all the other possibilities, including contemporary art, including wellness, including a lot of other variables of what you can become, including education of what you can become. So those things aren't laid out for all of the people that are suffering in those conditions. Yeah. And I think it's a great time right now. We, I saw Soul of a Nation a couple of years ago in L.A. That was a great show. And I know the MoMA is doing a whole series of art of shows around. Uh, I think it's titled Reconstructions. Yes, I've heard about it. I haven't seen it yet. but Yeah, yeah I haven't seen it either, but that sounds amazing. And I was just in a at the, at the SF MoMA. I saw an artist I'd never seen before. This seems to always happen, right? He had a whole, a whole room. Richard Mayhew, he's a landscape painter who yeah. painted... The landscape and in an interesting way where it's is about trying not to own it like colonialist white supremacist mentalities and it was he painted in a, this fluid way mm-hmm. and the idea was that it was blurry and that you couldn't yeah yeah totally yeah I'm, I'm again i'm really fascinated right now to see within the uh, institutional industries and museum cultures you know, how they're going to flip this script and and really kind of change the dynamic. I mean, a lot of them have shown a lot of incredible work for Black artists in the past. Problem is, is that they that the institution in and of themselves did not put themselves in a position in those communities that needed to see that work. You know, that's part of the issue. You know, there wasn't even programming for those institutions to go out into those communities to showcase that work. I think that would be, you know, pretty powerful and like more of a public works kind of um, engagement. And this is the equity and belonging yeah. that you're talking about with Compound. So how does Compound do that in the community? Well, one, where we are, you know, in, in Zaporia in the district of Long Beach, it's a very, very strong cultural neighborhood, mostly Hispanic. Um, there's a strong Cambodian culture there as well. So we, the accessibility is right next door, you know, so it's easy that it's convenient to stroll by and to say, okay, we can come into the space. And um, most of our programming is free. So you don't have to pay uh, a membership cost or anything like that to enter or an admissions fee like that for most of our programming. Um, The other factor is, is that what we're showing in there, most of the artwork, most of the the content um, is all related to empowering 
people of color, empowering those communities to know that your story, your culture should be the main part of the narrative that we tell going forward. We get to see help, and that's very inspiring through and through. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I was looking at, I guess you're you're feature. Are you featuring some of the work of this artist Josu Thomas? How do you, I'm mis, probably mispronouncing his mm-hmm. name? Uh, Josu. Yeah, Josu Thomas. Yes, there's an incredible. There's so many incredible artists that we're featuring, but he is one of them. Um, Tavar Strachan, who there's a, a our sign on outside the building is "You Belong Here." It's a lighting sign, and he did that, which is again part of the the presentation of equity and belonging that you you are supposed to be here. We have so many incredible people that are going to be part of our inaugural, which our inaugural art theme is radical empathy. Mm-hmm. So we have some powerful people that are going to be a part of, of that experience. And then also we have an experiential art warehouse called the laboratory featuring Glenn Kino, who's going to be our first artist that's going to uh, rep his work. And it's called Tide Pools. And it's really, really a beautiful piece on the notion of hope and curiosity. And it features one, it's, it's basically called the cloud chamber and it is making the invisible visible. So particles of the universe are made visible for uh, a reflective kind of experience. And then we also have uh, within that exhibition, the wishing well, which an artist, or I'm sorry, a visitor would take a piece of sculpture and put it into a wishing well. And their wish turns into a bioluminescent experience that exudes in a lighting format that is just beautiful. And then there's a, a resonance of, of sound as well. So there's it's, it's very immersive so that you are in that field of hope and curiosity and, and, and radical empathy. So how are you seeing yourself engaged with the community? Is Compound in a neighborhood? I'm thinking of, I can't remember the name of the gallery. I visited it last year. Iso Wan Bookstore is there. Yeah, yeah, that's a dope book bookstore. Yeah. Near Lemert Park, there's a new oh. gallery there. Yeah, yeah, that's in Lemert Park. That that Lemert. yeah, Lemert Park. Isawan, I've been there many times. It's a beautiful community, um, very similar in style and vibes as uh, Zafaria in, in in Long Beach. And yeah, there's there's a lot of little cultural icons in, in Long Beach proper. But yeah, we that's that's what we want to do. So there's a lot of local businesses, a lot of other nonprofit organizations, a lot of wellness organizations in the community that we're partnering with, allowing them yeah. to come to our space to do a lot of their work, um, which I think is really, really great. And then the other piece about it is is that you know, each individual matters, you know. So as they they come in and they have an experience. What makes it powerful is that they go back to their family and they share that experience and then their family will come to the space and also have that experience or different experience and share with them. And then they share with their friends and then the community starts to change. But one important facet of community engagement is not so much the idea of community building as it is with the community already exists. So we're not into the community to build we're coming into the community to get out of the way. 
so that they have the space to thrive and share and deepen their own cultural uh, experience. Yeah, and I think the area that I was mentioning earlier was great about it is it wasn't a, an area that had art traditionally. And is that is Compound kind of in that same type of neighborhood in uh, Long Beach? Yeah, there, there's there's art. There's a lot of um, artists, both young and old, in Long Beach proper that have been around. Long Beach has such a rich, rich history of diversity. It's one of the most diverse um, cities in, in, uh, in America, and there's always been powerful artists there. I think, you know, it. they just haven't had anything like Compound where there's multiple different entry points of being able to um, engage as an artist, conversations even. We even have a, a food and beverage aspect of, you know, our, our platform in which, you know, it's spirits, like having food together and community. So all of it is is about the intersection of how all these things come together. That's what we're changing. Yeah. Oh, we're making it less precious. Exactly. Less, right? Yeah. Exactly. Less the white box. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Not the Guggenheim yeah. uh, sitting in the middle of the neighborhood no. with high walls. Yeah. So how does wellness, uh, how are you bringing wellness into this intersection? Air. Yes, we have, um, it's uh, called the Energetic Residency, which is curated by Emma Gray, who is um, an incredible wellness practitioner and does a lot of work with breath work. So we have connected with many different yoga teachers, meditation teachers, sound bath facilitators that, you know, we offer those services free of charge at, at Compound on you know regular basis so um yeah it's really beautiful we even are doing it virtually now because of the pandemic but all different types of yoga um, all different types of breath work all types of meditation the other beautiful piece is that we always try to dance with both the art of wellness as well which you know is very the creative aspect of you know, how, you know, as you engage in yoga and you engage in meditation, how you kind of open up the creative process within that. And I think that's really a beautiful thing. And, and we, we hope to explore that a lot of different ways in the future. And the, on the flip side of that, some of the artwork in and of itself, because when you see art, you actually build a relationship with art. It's very therapeutic. You know, it's very powerful when you reflect on, like you were saying, Verda, initially, like asking those questions allows you to kind of, you know, explore many possibilities of yourself and like what you can become. Like when I was a kid, like I was explaining earlier, and also too, just being able to have the opportunity where you can feel your sensations and be honest with your sensations and not be ashamed about it. You know, I think is really. Yeah, yeah. Verda, this is really, as I'm listening to air, I'm thinking about design, right, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. And I, and I think, you know, design is, is not as accessible as, you know, air is trying to make art. Don't you think that design has this exclusivity to it? That- Very true. That's why I... That's why I did my project. Eric, can I tell you about my project? I'll hear about your project for sure. <laughs> it's actually, I'm going to send you a book. That was an unintended I'm perfect segment, by the way. I'm going to send you a book too. So I had the same realization one day. I felt like I was designing for the corporate 1%. A lot of, we did, a, we do a lot of tech firms and all the big names and you name it, we've done something for, one, for them. And it's just gotten more and more 
outlandish in the 2000s. It's just been crazy. And one day I thought, how can I, how can we just bring design to the people? How would we do that? And I landed on a, a mobile idea and I bought a food truck and converted it into a design lab. And we took it on a road trip <laughs> in the community. And we just, we just, so we just, yeah, the idea was just to show up and say, what do you need design for today? And to work and and to work with people. And we had a great project in Bakersfield and we parked out in front of a cafe and all kinds of people came up. We actually got the health department come and say, you can't, you need a permit to sell food. Like, we don't have any food. Right. <laughs> no, nope, just ideas. <laughs> just love. Yeah. Just and it was an amazing experience. Did you, did you document any of that? I mean, that that's the kind of thing would have been, you know, just to have a mini little documentary and like, kind of share that. That's a beautiful idea. Yeah, we did do a short video and then I we did a book. We wrote a whole book on oh, chronicling our journey from start to finish, design, the design process and what we learned. Yeah, it was amazing. You have to send a, a copy to Aaron. Yeah, I will. I will. That's an incredible um, story and experience. I love that. Totally. I would love to. Yeah, but it, it can be a challenge to to just insert yourself into the community. And, and you all... We had the most success when we had an advocate or we had a partner in the community. It's really pretty hard. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's been, for the most part, at least in my experience, the common excuse when you talk to businesses in any capacity as to why they don't do more community work is that they feel like, you know, some of them feel like there's the white savior mentality or there's some barrier of entry. And they haven't really figured out a way to create allies, you know, in the community, which is important for certain communities. And I think, you know, just thinking, of, you know, about this year, especially when the pandemic hit, I think there was this moment and it's been on a continu- continuum of pausing, like there's a big, great pause to really think about understanding that these systems were built broken. You know, and that they have not been able to support the communities in which they say, you know, that that they actually do. You actually it's just a a rotation of addiction where you're just constantly consuming. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think what's happened, people had a pause in that. And if you had the right insight and opportunity, you can lean in and see, oh, wow, this is I shouldn't be doing this. And because of the quarantine, you started to learn more about your neighborhoods, about your community, about walking around and gardening. And you're like, you know what? This doesn't suck. You know, so you started to understand the power and value of community. I think my prediction is there's going to be a huge shift towards more community building and engagement in the future. And I think little and I think art is going to be at the forefront of that. And hopefully design will too. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I'm imagining that we're going to be looking at designing. You know, we're we're going to, a lot of us are going to be working from home more. Yeah. And that's going to, we're going to want more within our radius. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah. of the 15 minute city that the mayor of Paris had talked about how she's going to create these 15 minute cities within Paris where you have everything that you need within 15 minutes, right. including including your arts organization. And I do think it's an incredible opportunity for arts organizations to rethink themselves. Uh, you know, Yerba Buena Center for the Arts here in San Francisco. I've never been. Yeah, but that's that's awesome. Yeah. 
they're the more contemporary arm of the MoMA. They do they do much more communal and and stuff that's really out there. And they don't have anybody visiting their gallery right now. So they opened it up for these kids after school to study at this local school that's mostly Filipino kids, but a, a pretty diverse ethnic group of kids in this, um, yeah, in this neighborhood. And so they're studying in this gallery after school now. And they've been doing that for a few months now. That is amazing. I love that. It's almost like we're all finding ways to repurpose who we are and what we do and and where we live and and work. And create community where we we are, not drive an hour or whatever. Exactly. And I think that, that is what has shown up mostly is that the way we were living before you know everyone's like let's get back to normal i don't want to get back to normal i want to i want to change what normal was because normal was you know a big separation between rich and poor and a big separation between people of color and you know the majority you know it's i i i think we need to transcend normal into um, true equity and belonging and community is mm-hmm. part of the human, you know, cycle is, is like making sure that, that we all connect and, um, I mean, community is, is how we evolved, you know? So yeah, it's really important. Yeah. I've been reading this book about capitalism and to capitalism in a, in a world on fire. Because <laughs> I, I think it's also along with white supremacy. I mean, they, they go hand in hand, obviously. And it's the linchpin to really make progress around climate change. And yeah. I think a lot of things have to change, but I think that a couple of these these overarching mentalities really, really do. A hundred percent. And I actually, I mean, in my opinion, I mean, climate change is the most important thing that we should be facing with, right? I mean, I, it transcends everything, in, yeah. my, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that it should, and I hope this is the case, um, you know, with the new administration coming in, that there's a refocus towards what we can do and should be doing to, mm-hmm. to stop the, the growth of, of um, you know, the climate change crisis and plastic pollution and all that good stuff. So, so yeah, I think that that has to, I mean, I'm, I'm in awe of my sister, Greta Thunberg, who is doing, inc- I mean, the power of what she has able to lead and spirit as far as activism is real. And, and yeah. I think it's, it's, it really speaks volumes about um, a lot of different things, but, but really what it's going to take to, to change the narrative. And by the way, she has a great documentary out on Hulu if you haven't seen it. So Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But I do think that it, yeah. that it does start with building community, being mindful of your neighbors, um, sharing resources, uh, creating a different economy. Yeah. All these things will, will filter in and ladder up. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we, what's cool is, you know, not everybody thinks art is going to do that, but, but it really does. Right. It really does. I mean, and it, it, and I don't mean commercial Art. I mean, I'm talking art that is connected to activism, art that is connected to chain. It's nestled in the work that, you know, John Michel Basquiat did with, with Warhol and that whole zeitgeist back then. 
is like you can't separate the two. And that's the beauty of, of art is it has the potential to really shift the narrative um, and really change the world, especially when it's authentic and honest and not surfaced with commercialism. Yeah. Were you an activist before you made your movie? No, <laughs> because in it doesn't mean that I, I, I had a lot of interest in activism. I did a lot of work protesting the, the Iraq war. And, you know, even back when I was in high school, you know, it's when the Rodney King situation happened out in, in Los Angeles in, in 92. I remember doing school walkouts and things like that. But activism is a full-time overtime job it is not like you can't really just dip your toe in and out of activism be called an activist in my opinion it is it is a very deep rooted focus um to to really be an activist and you know i think i think of you know just just people that that have done that over the years i mean it you almost it's like your life is you give your whole life to it you know but no i i you know i now i would and i even now you know i'm I'm a renaissance man. I, I do so many different things. I, I like activism, but I don't know if I would call myself per se an activist. Oh, I think you should. I would. I think it. you should. I think you are. <laughs> well, I think anybody that anybody that wants to speak out should should be comfortable. You know, we had somebody on our podcast last week, mm-hmm. Russell Verda, and he was saying that he was he was kind of mad that he waited so long to start talking about things that he believed in because he almost felt like he had to vet it first. Like he had to make sure that he was right. Mm. And, and we are guilty sometimes of, of not having this public forum where you can come out and, and describe how you're feeling and evolve in that process. Mm. You know, you, you don't have to be completely right and you don't have to check all the boxes and you don't have to be perfect. And, and you know, that's where we all stutter step. We say, oh, I better not step up here and, and start pointing fingers because people are going to call me a hypocrite. Right. You know. Yeah, I think that I think that's 100 percent true. And I think what's happened in recent years since the tech boom is and social media i feel like everyone has their own pr agent and so everyone is learning how they could in their own way use their own voice and engagement through these mediums of social engagement right and yeah which is really that you know i hate social media i'm not really on social media at all but there is one good thing about it is it, it allows you to connect with people instantly across the globe. And you see the similarities of lifestyle and culture. And, you know, after, you know, the situation with George Floyd happened, it's crazy because I've never seen in my lifetime a global solidarity like that. And I think a lot of it had to do with social media. You know? Well, don't you remember when an actor would come out and and speak for a cause or a professional athlete. And somebody would inevitably say, you're an actor. What do you know? Oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, that still happens on Fox news. Oh, look (laughs) at what did they say to LeBron James? Just dribble. Why don't you just dribble, right? Something like that. Exactly. Shut up. You know, that's what we are beginning to transcend is that, 
doesn't matter if you're an actor. If you have a voice, uh, you have a platform. And if people want to listen to you, then they can listen exactly. to you. Exactly. I think what's powerful, and this is where I was, when I was talking about this earlier, about social justice being the requirement, and if it's just a marketing piece. But what, what the NBA has done with having Black Lives Matter on the court has bridged the gap between athlete and the industry and corporation by which the athlete has played. And I think this, honestly, you know, I, you know, I'll take a knee from my man, Colin Kaepernick, but that is what he was. Mm -hmm. And before it's like, you know, it's like, I, that takes a, going back to what matters, courage. Oh yeah. So he took the knee and said, no, this, I'll give up everything just to make this point. Do you know how many people learned from him oh yeah absolutely absolutely which you know i mean this this started even i don't know if you know tommy smith the guy with the black fist back in the olympics uh you know Mm -hmm. that was that was another iconic moment uh which is a great documentary called withdrawn arms that um i think just came out um that is directed by by glenn kino who is our uh inaugural uh, artists for our laboratories. So yeah, that those kind of moments, again, shape and change history. Ali did it too, you know. Mm. You it's like not separating those two things. And that takes a tremendous amount of courage uh, to be able to do that. But it changes the game. I still think you're an activist. I think you, well, you've got a great platform, the compound, and you're an activist yeah. for the community. You're an activist for wellness. Okay, and I think you're probably going to be putting out there out out some pretty thought provoking programming, and I'm sure you'll be trying to to find a thread around climate change and and all kinds of things in future programs. I I can I, I can't wait to visit your I can't wait to visit. Oh, yeah. thank you. When the pandemic releases us from its icy grip, <laughs> Verda, we're gonna we're gonna fire up your food truck and do like you know <laughs> podcasts on the road, and we'll come down we'll come down to see. Oh, Aaron that would and, be. Uh, we'll have this conversation such again. Such an honor, man! I, I would love that. I'd love to see you both in person and to experience Compound, and I think that would be incredible. So definitely, when we can open it up, come. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you can't oh, wait man. either. <laughs> it's been a ride. That's all I can say. <laughs> wow. Hey, thanks so much for giving us some of your time. My I pleasure. Feel blessed. Feel blessed. It was Such great. An honor. I'm really grateful. Thank you. Best of luck with Compound and whatever you do next. And your so we'll be watching. We're gonna and your watching. non-activism. <laughs> 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 you little pacifist, you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, thank you both. It's Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. Take Bye-bye. care.